You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. US midterms. The Republicans' anticipated red wave is more like a purple trickle. France winds up its anti-terror operation in West Africa after nearly a decade. And how much should we care about historical accuracy in historical fiction? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Terry Stiasny and Lou Lukens will discuss all the day's big stories. We'll have the latest on the midterms from Chris Chermak in Pennsylvania and we'll remember the life and music of the great Brazilian singer Gal Costa. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Lou Lukens, senior partner at Signum Global Advisors and former US diplomat, and by the political journalist and author Terry Stiasny. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, By way of foreshadowing what we will be discussing at length this evening, are either or both of you the kind of sad, friendless nerd who stays up all night watching the returns, even from US midterm elections? Yes. Excellent. Terry? <laughs> not, the U- not the US ones. I am usually a sad, sad you know, elections nerd in most things, but you know, not, not quite as you know, good on every little congressional district. But so, I, I did do the other way around. I was watching British politics collapse from in the States a couple of weeks so ago, I, which, I, I, which was quite entertaining. I, I have always... Could- always like the idea that maybe there's this small community of like American British politics nerds who stay up all night watching <laughs> by-elections come in. There must be in a country as vast and diverse of your, as yours, Lou. There must be. There must be. Yeah. Uh, but we will start tonight's show proper in the United States. There was a time, a happier time in reason, reasonably recent memory where almost nobody outside the US paid any attention to midterm elections. Indeed, they were something of a minority preoccupation inside the US. That was, of course, before one of America's great political parties started losing interest in America's democratic institutions, installed the country's worst unimprisoned citizen as president, and has of late threatened to do so again. So US midterm elections have begun to matter to the world, very much so. And for the latest on these midterm elections, our Washington correspondent Chris Chermak joins us from Pennsylvania, where the Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman has flipped a Senate seat to the Democrats. Um, Chris, let's start with John Fetterman's win does that have any nationwide resonances at all so far as we can tell or is that just a a specifically pennsylvanian phenomenon uh no i do think uh andrew it has a lot of nationwide res- re- you know resolutions certainly first of all just because of what you mentioned there this is the only seat that was flipped at least at the moment in the senate in uh in these elections this is the one seat that the democrats picked up And as a result of that, there is a very decent chance at this point, though there are still some races outstanding, that they will hold on to the Senate. And it also says something more in general, I think, because Pennsylvania is this fascinating state that is a bit of a microcosm of what's happened here over the last few years, because it used to be more democratic. It was typically a democratic, you know, blue collar state which Donald Trump then surprisingly won in 2016 because he has also picked up a number of sort of blue-collar voters with his anti-immigration, anti-trade stances, things like that. So the fact that now, once again, 
Pennsylvania's main positions are held by Democrats. The governor won, uh, Josh Shapiro won his race, then John Fetterman won the Senate race. The other Senate seat is also held by a Democrat. That is actually quite significant and does show that people matter, character matters. I think the Republicans that were put up in Pennsylvania didn't really sort of miss the mark. They were chosen by Donald Trump and Pennsylvanians generally rejected them. So I think that does hold a lot of lessons for for Republicans and Democrats going forward. Uh, Chris, midterm elections, especially in a new president's first term, are traditionally seized upon as an opportunity to give the occupant of the White House a bit of a kicking. And that was widely anticipated, especially with inflation uh, the way it is. Uh, That hasn't entirely happened. And we'll talk about the why with our panelists shortly. But if we just look at the figure of President Joe Biden, how big a result is this for him? You know, honestly, Andrew, I don't think it's a huge result for him. When you when you talk about uh, delivering a kicking, I, I would argue that part of what was the issue at issue in this midterm was that voters wanted to deliver both Joe Biden and Donald Trump a kicking, and they couldn't really decide which of those two <laughs> to deliver the biggest kicking to. And so as a result of that, they may have also focused a little bit more on the actual races, on the personalities, what was at stake, the issues that were at stake, whether that was abortion as well, which played a big, uh, was a big determinant in this race as well, along with the economy. So that was kind of, I think, the main issue. And then to some degree, yes, as you kind of mentioned in your introduction, the election deniers did not do very well in individual races. Character was an issue. So that's kind of where I think that all of this played out. Joe Biden himself, he can be somewhat happy, relieved with this result. He has a somewhat better chance to enact his agenda going forward, although the House of Representatives still looks more likely to, to flip to Republicans. But I certainly wouldn't say that he's going to take anything po- super positive away from this. I, I generally get the feeling I have to say that, you know, also looking ahead to 2024, both candidates, whether it's a Joe Biden or Donald Trump, I, you get a little bit of a feeling from these midterms that really voters would like both parties to move on and, and find some fresh faces to run for, for party elections. Uh, Chris, these these elections are not quite done and dusted yet. Counting is still going on. There are a number of races that are or were extremely tight. Uh, what do we still not know? So there's quite a few that we still don't know, Andrew. Uh, In terms of the House of Representatives, as I said, first of all, to to start with that, even that, it's not 100% clear that the Republicans will take the House. There are a number of races outstanding, including the one right here where I am in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Lehigh Valley, Susan Wilde is a Democratic incumbent. She's in a very, very close race with Lisa Scheller. So that's one that we are waiting also for mail-in ballots and various other things to be counted over the next few days. And then when it comes to the Senate, there are really four races that are still outstanding at this point. There is Georgia, there is Wisconsin, there is Nevada, and there is Arizona. Wisconsin looks very likely to to stay in Republican hands. And then the, the question sort of comes down to those those three remaining ones, Nevada and Arizona, both held by Democrats. 
if Democrats could hold those two seats, then they basically already have their majority in the Senate, or at least they have 50 seats. And with the vice president being sort of the tie-breaking vote, they would essentially control the Senate. If one of those seats does not go to Democrats in the next couple of days, then it will all come down to Georgia, an extremely close race between Raphael Warnock, uh, is is the sort of incumbent Democrat against Herschel Walker. And this is, of course, the wrinkle people might remember from two years ago. This race has a very specific rule that candidates have to get over 50% or there is a runoff. Neither candidate is going to get 50%. So there is a chance if the other races don't go the Democrats' way in Arizona and uh, and Nevada, that we could be back here in a month with the Senate hanging in the balance, uh, waiting for the result in Georgia. That would be fun, wouldn't it, Andrew? Uh, indeed it would. Uh, Chris Chermak, thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, let's bring in our panellists now, Terry Stiasny and uh, Lou Lukens. Um, Lou, first of all, as the, the resident American here on uh, the panel, what leaps out at you most from what we know of the results so far? Well, I think it was a good night for Democrats. Even if they lose control of the House, they, they will lose control by much less than they had than everyone had anticipated. I think Chris was right. This was a referendum on Joe Biden, but also on Donald Trump. And I think that sort of evened the odds a little bit for Democrats. Um, I think it clearly young people came out to vote in much higher numbers than people had anticipated they would. And I think that's a lesson for pollsters. The young people are notoriously hard to poll pre-elections. Um, But they showed up in in large numbers and they voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. And abortion as an issue is is interesting because over the summer, people thought this is going to be the big issue. Over the last couple of weeks, most of the polling indicated that abortion was sort of down around number five after crime, immigration, inflation in the economy. However, exit polling yesterday indicated that actually abortion was the top issue for, for, was the second most important issue for voters after the economy. So it clearly it, it was an important issue for voters. And for voters for whom that was an important issue, most of them voted for Democrats. Well, on that subject, let's have a listen to some of what Pennsylvania's new Senator John Fetterman had to say. I'm proud of what we ran on, protecting a woman's right to choose. Raising our minimum wage, fighting the union way of life, health care is a fundamental human right. It saved my life and it should all be there for you when you ever should need it. Standing up to corporate greed. Making more things right here in America and right here in Pennsylvania. And standing up for our democracy. Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor, now Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, celebrating his victory earlier. Um, Terry, obviously, uh, John Fetterman has a fairly partisan view uh, of what kind of issues might have moved Americans to vote uh, Democrat in these elections. But do you think it's basically accurate that that those were the kind of things that got people to the polls, especially those young people who, as Lou was pointing out, pollsters often miss? 
Yes, I think that's probably the case. I mean, without seeing all of the detailed figures so far, I was struck by someone else who's obviously got a completely partisan view of all this, which is Hillary Clinton, who said, well, look, it turns out women like to have rights and women turned out to vote on those issues. And so, you know, if you're looking at young people and it might well have driven an increase in, in turnout among women and also not only in the more general, you know, state, uh, senator governor's elections but on state level there were quite a few propositions specifically on abortion rights which wrote the rights to abortion into state law mm. in places like california and even in places like kentucky where the laws are otherwise very sort of strictly anti-abortion it's now uh, there's you know a, a, an, a, a vote which has allowed that to be questioned and will allow people to push for slightly more rights than the state might otherwise have let them. So, you know, on the individual local state level, that has that has played a, a, a big role as well. Um, Lou, it was, as we have been discussing, very, very far from the red wave that the Republican Party had been hoping for. But there is no doubt that there was one Republican for whom this was a monumental win uh, yesterday, and this was the governor of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis. We can hear some of what he had to say as well. We have embraced freedom. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents. We have respected our taxpayers and we reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida summoning the woke bogeyman in his victory speech. Um, Lou, however, he won by a street uh, in what was once regarded as a swing state. Um, as of that result, bookmakers now have him favourite uh, as opposed to someone else who we shall get to shortly to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Does that seem fair to you? It does. I, I think I think that's absolutely correct. I think he has shown um, he's been a successful governor and he has um, turned that into incredible turnout and votes for him and for his party in Florida. Let's not forget that the person he ran against was the is the former Republican governor mm. of 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 uh, Florida? So you know, not exactly a super left wing woke type, as he says. Um, and and he ran a strong campaign. He has unlimited funds basically at his disposal. Two billionaires have each pledged one billion dollars to him if he runs for president. Um, and he's also raised over a hundred million dollars himself. So uh, American politics are expensive, and he's got the money to do it. Well, the former president, Donald Trump, may have become a slightly more former president in the last 24 hours, but let's hear from him as well. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all. OK, but it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, when they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. Terry, regular listeners will be aware that I am profoundly loath to credit uh, former President Donald Trump with anything at all. Sometimes I do wonder if there is somewhere in there a sense of humour. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it was very strange. I was listening to bits of him speaking at one of the uh, one of his rallies, and he's been to spend most of his time talking about the buckets of rain and the teleprompter, and he's just sort of going off on sort of strange tangents. Um, I think it's it's really interesting though that we're talking about Ron DeSantis. One of the things that he chose to point out was like we chose law and order over rioting and disorder, and so he is trying to you know make that distinction between himself and Trump as as obvious as he can. And I think you know it is quite interesting that a lot of the candidates uh, that Trump had supported, okay, some of them uh, did quite well, some people like J.D. Vance and stuff, but interestingly, some of the people who had said when they were running that they didn't accept the last set of election results and who quite possibly wouldn't accept the next set of election results, you know, had they lost. They didn't win. Now, whether they're going to try and question that and claim something different, uh, I don't know. But it, it will hopefully make the next set of elections more secure with fewer people trying to question the outcomes. Because, Lou, with all due acknowledgement that Trump and Trumpism have been written off many many, many times before, um, and only to come roaring back. Can we conclude that yesterday was not a good day for Trumpism? And if we boil that down to one race, uh, it's the race uh, still under, still being counted, uh, featuring Colorado Congresswoman and idiot uh, Lauren <laughs> Boebert, uh, who looks like she might have lost in a bit of an upset. It's probably also worth noticing, however, that Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia did win, but not by as much as she had previously. Well, a, a win is a win. She'll be seated in the next Congress and will probably have some important committee assignments to boot. Um, look, I think Trumpism is, you're right, it's been written off before. Donald Trump clearly was planning as of this time yesterday to announce his run for the next presidential race mm. next Tuesday. Um, there's, he's getting a lot of pressure from people say, saying, now's not the right time, you're weakened. But it would be humiliating for him to sort of walk back on that. So I still think there's a strong possibility that he announces or he launches a presidential campaign next week. Um, But it'll be a weakened campaign because his candidates didn't do as well and because Ron DeSantis did so well. Um, Terry, on the other side uh, of the House, this is obviously the last significant uh, electoral test that President Biden will be put to ahead of 2024. Um, Should the Democrats now start to be having a conversation about whether he should be on the top of their ticket in 2024? Not just because his own personal approval ratings are, are not tremendous. There is the, well, immutable fact of the man's age. Yes, I I think it's a conversation that that they need to have. It's obviously made slightly more difficult by uh, this good set of results. But I suppose what you would have to try to do is try to convince Joe Biden and and people around him that, you know, look, you've done tremendously well. You you won the most difficult uh, and really highly contested election. You've done a fantastic job. Thank you very much. Maybe it's time to move on. But sometimes these things get overtaken by, you know, by events, by health, by, you know, things that you you can't predict um, but the question is who who is able to to go to him and try to you know persuade him uh, that maybe that would be a thing to do for someone who's you know not not far off 80 uh, Lou just finally on this uh, one interesting factoid there was a thing in Republican primaries in a, a few key districts building up to these midterms where the Democrats rather playing with fire spent their own money to boost Republican candidates who struck them as the most obvious deranged in any available race. The idea being that if we put these yahoos actually up to the gate, then voters will turn away from them. Now, a lot of people 
harkening back to, well, most obviously the the presidential election of 2016 did get a bit, be careful what you wish for here. But all of those candidates, all of the GOP headbangers that the Democrats went out and stomped for, lost. Um, Is there, uh, therefore, a lesson there in the value of judicious cynicism? Yeah, look, it, it was a it was a dangerous strategy. I think it 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 seems to have paid off this mm. election cycle. But it's something that I would think it, they would want to think hard, hard about doing again, uh, because it it could backfire. Um, but you know, that said, it worked this time around, so I'm sure they'll try it again next time around. Lou and Terry, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you later in the show. Now, today's theme at the COP27 Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh has been finance. And this year's conference has seen developing countries, many of them in Africa, push for the developed world to pay compensation for the climate change they are disproportionately responsible for, a process known as loss and damages. Africa is also home to some of the most fragile and important ecosystems in the world, which are, of course, threatened by climate change and resource exploitation. Carlotta Ribello has been at COP27 for Monocle24. Earlier today, she caught up with Lee White, Minister of Water, Forests, the Sea and Environment in Gabon. She asked him how Gabon is protecting its forest. The Congo Basin is, is the heart and lungs of the African continent. And so as Gabon thinks about, we think about our development strategy a country, we're a country that's 88% covered in forests. We, we are aware of the fact that if we develop by cutting the forest down, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot because we're condemning the Sahel and we're condemning tens or hundreds of millions of Africans to become climate refugees. So we have to find a way to develop our country to create jobs for our people whilst also keeping the forest standing. So the model we've come up with was to ban the export of logs, unprocessed logs. Uh, For over a century we exported logs and when we did that we were only recovering 5 to 10 percent of the potential value of the timber that we were exporting. So when President Ali Bongo banned the export of logs and and made timber transformation obligatory in-country, we started to increase revenues from our timber. So in 10 years, we've multiplied our forest um, economy by a factor of four, and we've three times more jobs in the forest sector because we're transforming the timber and that creates jobs and value added. Uh, and we can still go further. We think we can still add another zero. We can, we can multiply by 10 the economy and the number of jobs. And our vision is that m- that increases the value of the forest. As a rule, people manage things that are valuable and things that are not valuable get treated badly. And so we think that in the long term, if, if, if forests are going to be viable in Gabon, they have to be thought of as a precious commodity by the Gabonese people. And if we have hundreds of thousands of people whose jobs rely on sustainable forest management, if we, we can increase the contribution of, of forestry to the economy uh, such that the ministers of economy and, 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 and budget think of the forest sector as a precious sector, then we can we have a much better hope of, of preserving the forest. So we're, we're exploiting our forest to save the forest, exploiting it sustainably to save the forest. Loss and damage payments has been talked about a lot in these first few days already, so one can expect over the next couple of days for that to continue. 
What's your assessment of where nations are standing on that? Do you think it will be possible to find an agreement by the end of COP27 or are these more wealthier nations trying to move the conversation elsewhere, I guess? Just the way these negotiations work where we're trying to find consensus across almost 200 countries, um, it takes time. And so when you look at the schedule of the negotiations, we're not planning to conclude the work on loss and damage here in Egypt. There's meant to be a conclusion next next year in Dubai. So so we won't conclude the work on loss and damage here, here in Egypt. What we will have by the time we get to the end of the negotiation here at COP27 is we'll have an idea of what progress we are making. And I think there's a, it sounds like there's a very severe threat that we won't make much progress. And so what I'm hearing from the negotiators is if there's going to be a clash here between developed and developing nations, it's going to be on loss and damage because our impression is the small gains we made in Glasgow, because we didn't get everything we wanted, but we did for the very first time ever get loss and damage onto the official agenda of, of the COP. So th that, that was an achievement. But the, the small progress that we made, the impression is that developed nations are perhaps reticent to advance. And so it, it may well end up that the way we judge COP27 is how we advanced on that particular issue. I think it's going to become the litmus test over the next 10 days of was COP27 a success or not. And so I'm watching very carefully and I'm, I'm uh, readying myself like a, like a heavyweight boxer. I'm getting ready for the fight. That was Gabon's uh, Minister for the Environment, Lee White, speaking to Monocle's Carlotta Ribello. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Still with me are Lou Lukens and Terry Stiasny. Now, President Emmanuel Macron of France has today officially pronounced the end of Operation Bakan, the French-led military intervention which spent nearly 10 years fighting jihadists in the Sahel region of West Africa. At its peak, roughly 5,500 French troops were deployed. The rest of the contingent was primarily composed of West Africa. African armies. It's not the end of a French military presence in the Sahel. Around 3,000 troops will still be posted in Niger, Chad and Burkina Faso, but will not act independently of their host nation's governments. Um, Terry, first of all, it's, it's a bit of a how long is a piece of string question, but how do you measure the success or otherwise of an operation like this? Uh, I think you know, it's obviously very difficult because you don't know, you can't know what would have happened uh, had mm. had the French troops not been there, and how much worse the situation uh, might have been. You know, France obviously thought that it was hugely important. They thought that they were trying to uh, prevent the spread of terrorism not only in Africa, but obviously concerned about the effect that instability in all of these countries was going to have on France and on on the rest of Europe as well. Um, obviously, there was increasing concern within France about the number of, of troops who had been killed and this became you know difficult to to kind of sustain but they've got there seems to they seem to be pulling out of this without having quite yet developed a new strategy i mean macron was talking about having a strategy finalized within the next 6 months which seems to be you know you know, he'd announced that he was going to do this a while ago, and it seems to be strange to not quite have decided what your what your what your next level of your strategy is going to be. But I think that the concern will be what happens. You know, 
if the countries don't want you there anymore, you can't obviously stay as well. But what happens in the absence of that that French presence? Well, the, the countries not wanting them there anymore was, of course, an issue with Mali, with Mali in, in particular. Um, but Lou... Terry there raises a point which I think often gets overlooked when people discuss the rights or wrongs of interventions of this sort, which is that there are consequences to doing nothing. Uh, There is an outcome when you decide not to intervene. Um, You served, uh, among other postings, as a a US ambassador in West Africa. What would have been or what plausibly would have been the consequence if France had decided not to do this? Well, as Terry said, it's almost impossible to measure. But the, you know, there is the the very real possibility that without those troops and without the operations that they were carrying out, that there would have been successful terror attacks in Europe, in France. Um, it's 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 sort of hard to prove a negative. So it, it's you know it, it's hard to say exactly what the positive uh, ramifications of the intervention were. Uh, but but of course that's a possibility, and and that's why. Um, Western troops tend to intervene in these kinds of countries in anti-terror operations is to prevent the terrorists from carrying out operations on Western soil. Um, Terry, it is, it's, the, it's the journalistic disease, or, or one of them, uh, to perceive trends in what may well be happenstance, but this obviously comes a little over a year after the United States withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. Um, is it fair to say that we are perhaps seeing a, a dwindling in the general appetite for interventions of this sort? Yes, and I think that's been happening, you know, over certainly at least the last, you know, 10, 10 years or so. Um, and, you know, there is a reluctance to to go beyond, certainly beyond the borders of Europe. Obviously, the question of, you know, it's Ukraine in particular, I think, has focused European minds a bit closer to home in terms of mm. worrying about what's actually happening uh, on the borders of Europe. But I think, you know, after Iraq, after Afghanistan, there is um, a great reluctance to, to do international interventions, even in the cases where that might possibly be helpful. We, f- we tend to forget about the, the shorter and, and arguably more successful kinds of um, humanitarian interventions. But I mean, as I was saying before, I think, you know, the danger is what comes into the gap that France has left. And in particular, you know, one of the risks is that there are Russian-backed mercenaries, that there have been protests against France in Burkina Faso with anti-French protesters who have started waving Russian flags. Now, whether that's actually because they support Russia or because they just wanted to, to wind the French up, I'm not, you know, in 100% <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, there, there is a danger because, if, you know, if so you don't... Inter- intervene there are going to be other people who will quite happily do that um lou this this is where the host cunningly uh if not cleverly yokes together the west africa and afghanistan scenarios and indeed stirs in that sort of theme of the counterfactual because i i have often wondered if operation bakan looks like a model for maybe something the united states could have done in afghanistan i.e intervene with a much lighter footprint don't go in with any grandiose ideas of turning this place into a liberal democracy just send a military presence there that deals with and deters the jihadist elements and as far as possible let the locals govern themselves yeah look i mean the ideal situation is actually what happened in senegal when i was ambassador there which is a, a, a quite robust U.S. presence, but training local troops. Mm. So the U.S. Were, were not carrying out operations there, but they were training Senegalese military and Marines on how to do the operations themselves. And it was a very successful program. And I think when you cross the line from training local troops to carrying out independent operations as foreigners on on, on another soil, that's where you start alienating the local inhabitants. You start running 
in, 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 in political and social and cultural problems. Because I, I was in Bamako in Mali about 2014, I think. And at, and at that point, the, the French presence was still genuinely very popular. Yeah, but you know, you stay too long, you operate too independently. People have a hard time seeing the benefit to them, and that's when the population starts to get unhappy with you. Well, moving along to something entirely different on today's show. In light of the events of the last twelve months, perhaps I have more to reflect on than most. The royal family is in genuine crisis. Have royal scandals damaged the country's reputation? The House of Windsor should be binding the nation together, setting an example of idealized family life. It's a situation that cannot help but affect the stability of the country. And a big shout out at this point to anyone actually listening to this instead of being glued to Netflix drama The Crown, season five of which premieres today. For those unfamiliar with the concept, The Crown is a saga purporting to chronicle the private lives of the British royal family from circa the accession of Queen Elizabeth II to the present day, more or less. The depiction of the royal family by The Crown has been criticised in some quarters, on the grounds that one is a scarcely credible soap opera featuring a cast of preposterous caricatures, while the other is, yes, I am here all week, a television series. Last night, our own Laura Kramer was at the Crown Series 5 premiere. She spoke to Imelda Staunton, who plays Elizabeth II in the upcoming season. Laura asked her if the response to the show might change as it gets closer to the present day. Well, I mean, you know, we are in 1992, and for some people, that is history. Uh, you know, the first series was like a costume drama. It was so long ago. So it's creeping closer, but it, it, it isn't now. And I think that's important to remember. It isn't now. But, I mean, feelings are, are raw, probably still. And, um, and that is understandable. But we feel that too. So it's not like we're not taking any We know that too. And we feel it. So therefore, none of us are going, oh, we shouldn't be doing it. I think, I think this is a real tribute, I hope, to, to our royal family. Imelda Staunton, who plays Elizabeth II in season five of The Crown. Uh, Terry, if you weren't here right now, would you be watching this? I, I would if, if I could sort of get to the television over the kind of wildly rolling eyeballs of the rest of my family. <laughs> not um, but I, I just refuse to believe that 1992 is 30 years ago because it's it's not. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing about The Crown that I find is that now it's come into the era that I remember, mm. that I remember living through. I'm much more sceptical because you sort of look at it and go, no, no, that, I, that's not how I remember it happening. Whereas, you know, the bits of the, the coronation, I was like, yeah, of course that's how it happened because it's much, <laughs> much longer ago and I don't remember it. You know, all sort of great st stories about Princess Margaret and all of that. So, yeah, the closer it gets to your own memories of, of what you perceived happened at the time, uh, the harder it is to do that. It's sort of, it's, it's all, a, you know, just a, it's a lovely story. Uh, we will come to the question of its historical accuracy shortly, but Lou, you sit here as a representative of a people who threw a whole, you know, thing uh, to cease being dictated to by these people. Have you been watching The Crown? Uh, I watched the first two seasons. I haven't watched uh, the last couple. And I have not been watching the new one. What, why did you zone out of it? Uh, you know what? It was interesting, but 
there are sort of more compelling things to watch when I had the time. <laughs> was it was um, the episode about I, the fog? There is I, one episode where nothing happens except London is yeah, really foggy. Yeah, I, I think that might have been when I decided enough is enough. <laughs> um, but I will say I, I am interested in watching the new one for exactly the reason that Terry said, because it, it is sort of contemporary to our memories, and mm. it, that'll make it quite interesting, I think. Well, at, at which point, Terry, I am rather reminded of that uh, maxim of newspapers often attributed to Claude Coburn, that people believe everything they read in the newspaper apart from the one story they actually know something about, which they... <laughs> they know is total rubbish. Um, I just want to go back to that thing that you were talking about, about how it, it, it jars with your recollections of, of what actually happened, because it does open up the genuinely interesting question of what you do owe the truth when you are constructing a historical fiction. And historical fiction, I'm a massive sucker for as a genre. It's a great way of telling stories and imparting lessons. But how far, sh- well, to what extent should you keep it within the boundaries of what actually happened? Well, the thing with the royal family is there's, you know, there's what actually happened, which we don't necessarily know. And there's what we think happened. There's the stories that we were told and there's the stories that we read in the Mm. newspapers, which obviously, you know, they were trying to create an image in the 90s is when it all starts to fall apart quite badly. So, you know, there's a whole sort of disjunction there. But a historical thing, I mean, there is obviously you have to sometimes tweak the history to, to make a better story. Um, but I've, I do find sometimes I find it quite jar- I find it most jarring in proper historical non-fiction when people tend to use the techniques of fiction like they will sort of go it was a bright sunny day and you know Winston Churchill was walking down the street wearing a you know a particular kind of hat and you kind of think no, I, I want if, if, if it's not if it's non-fiction I want a footnote telling me where he bought the hat and whether it was actually <laughs> his favorite hat or not if it's historical fiction I think you can take certain liberties with it I mean there was the film uh, the Churchill Darkest Hour I literally traveling am... on the tube and things like that and you think no I don't really don't really buy that see i i I could show you the script right now terry to demonstrate that i was literally going to talk about that (laughs) scene which to me lou i don't know if you've seen it yourself strikes me as the absolute epitome of how not to do this i don't think i don't think a few minutes of film have ever made me angry uh there is there is a scene in which winston churchill is is wandering the streets of london you know his conscience struggled by how much he can ask from his fellow britons in this great struggle against nazi tyranny and is he putting them all through to, you know, putting them all through far too much, asking too much, etc., etc. Um, he takes the tube, which I don't think I think Churchill might have been known historically to have done perhaps once in his life, and obviously finds himself plonked in this um, extremely demographically correct selection of Londoners who, who who rally the great man and say, no, you know, stick it to Adolf Winston, etc. That's not that's actually not far removed from actual dialogue. <laughs> my my very expensive television nearly went into the garden. Um, <laughs> rant over at that point but so the question I'll, I'll put to you as well Lou again like what kind of liberty should you be allowed to take I, I think if it's historical fiction take as many as you like if it's a documentary as Terry said you got to have the footnotes and, and hew more to the historical truth but you know it is fiction and and you know you know I know there are people who say there should be a disclaimer at the beginning of every episode saying this is fiction not historically accurate um, but you know it is historical fiction and the key word being fiction, I think. Yeah, what did you think about the disclaimer thing that got raised, Terry, to sort of, you know, literally spell it out to people, not all of this necessarily happened? I mean, I was about to argue, are people really that daft? And then I remember we were talking earlier about the fact that Lauren Bobert could still get re-elected. <laughs> uh, 
I, I don't think you need it. I mean, I, I think the only reason you need it is for some kind of, you know, legal reasons in case somebody sort of came along and said, you know, they wanted to say, no, this didn't happen. You're presenting this as though it was the truth. And actually, you know, I, I never wear a purple tie in, in summer because <laughs> that would be outrageous or brown shoes in town or whatever it was. Um, they are lucky in that the royal family doesn't doesn't usually sue. So you can pretty much, you know, take whatever liberties you like with the truth. It's just, you know, people like us going, oh, I, I remember this. Ha- I remember it that way. And that wasn't how it was. So, yeah, I don't think you need a, a disclaimer. I think people realise that it's, you know, it, it's a nice story. Well, with that, we will let you, Terry, dash home to watch it. We will let you, Lou, dash home to not watch it. Uh, Terry Stiasny and Lou Lukens, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, one of the biggest names in Brazilian music died today at the age of 77. The legendary Gal Costa was a founding member of the counterculture Tropicalia mu- movement, rather, in Brazil, and was still very much active, touring and releasing new albums. Monocle's Brazilians Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Carolina Abbott Galvao now reflect on Costa's life. Carol, what a sad day for uh, Brazilian music and Brazil in general. Uh, it's the death of Gal Costa. She is one of the biggest names in Brazilian music. She was 77. But one thing I always admired about Gal Costa, she never stopped. She was supposed to be in a festival in Sao Paulo only last weekend. She was still collaborating with younger artists. I feel that she was always a woman ahead of her time. Don't you agree? Definitely. She was always pushing the boundaries. And, you know, when I think back to the the Tropicalia movement and I think about icons of that movement, Gal Costa is certainly someone who always comes to mind. She is definitely someone who is just simply, simply an icon, like you said, and just completely ahead of her time. And you mentioned uh, Tropicalia, the Tropicalismo movement was a countercultural movement in Brazil and she was one of, one of the founding members. In fact, one of her biggest hits, Baby, come from around that time. And, you know, her music was always very Brazilian, but had a lot of elements. It had elements of psychedelia, you know, rock, pop. I mean, she could do any genre she wanted, right? Definitely. And I mean, I love her music so much. And, you know, I live in London and whenever I show her music to like my friends or listen to it in the house even my flatmates will be like what is that it just sounds completely different um it's just completely i mean it's just unusual in such a relaxing and such a beautiful way i would say and 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 for me she also represents brazil i mean we've been living such in such conservative times but she's a woman that has been censored i think her album uh one of her albums you know with the cover was quite uh you know scandalous at the time and that's what i say she always liked to push boundaries i'll never forget a concert she did back in 94 with a cover of the song called brazil mm. uh, which i believe is by cazuza uh yeah. you know and and then she was singing you know with her naked breasts and that was kind of a a political act as well so she was always surprising in that sense as well yeah yeah and you speak about sort of um you know thinking back to tropicalia as a counterculture movement there i mean we're coming out of that time now but even during the bolsonaro years there are such interesting parallels between what was happening in that time when you know people like caetano veloso and gilberto gil and gal costa were making music and you know some of the artists who were trying to push the boundaries and, you know, facing so much 
uh, resistance from like these more conservative like facets of like society now even. And hopefully we're sort of exiting those times now politically and on a societal level more broadly. But, you know, it's such an it's so interesting to draw parallels between those times. Right. I don't know if you agree. <laughs> I do agree. And, and, and Carol, you know, the song that uh, we chose to end here is Baby, which I think is one of our favorites, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I grew up listening to this song and she mentions my name, Carolina, Gasolina, Margarina. I remember I'd be like in the car listening to it with my parents and think, oh, my gosh, she's talking to me. With no further ado, this is our tribute to the wonderful Gal Costa. And this is Baby. That was the late Gal Costa, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Lou Lukens and Terry Stiasny, and also to Chris Chermack for joining us at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard, with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>